Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Millman App Podcast. Another episode, another guest. Today we have Daniel with us, who is currently CEO of Flow, a project management company. But that's not all. He has done some crazy shit out there with his previous stints that he'll be telling us all about. But we are also very keen to understand how does a CEO of a project management company manages his time. Daniel, welcome to the episode. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome um, to be here and I'm excited to chat with you, Mohit. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Daniel. So to start with, why don't you take a couple of minutes just uh, telling all of us, uh, what do you do right now? What does your life look like? Yeah. So my main focus kind of day in, day out is um, leading flow. And I joined that company two years ago. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit in depth, but I joined that company two years ago and it's my first in, in an operations role. So I've done, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but I've uh, my background's pretty design heavy. So I've um, led a lot of design teams at, at various companies and um, had always wanted to see what it was like to be leading a company. You know, I've led departments in companies. I've um, you know, led launches at a bunch of companies. I've led, um, you know, design work at a bunch of companies, but I've never sat in a little bit of that, you know, bigger chair. I've also been super interested in investing in business for a very long time. And so this felt like an opportunity to take both my product and design background to a tool that was very design centric to take some of my interest in business and investing and, and try to apply that to an operations role. So, that takes up the majority of my time, but then I also do a lot of, um, I'm incredibly curious and a lot of the ways that, that curiosity manifests itself is either via investing. So I, I do um, investing both in early stage um, venture back companies as well as public equities. Mm -hmm. We can talk a little bit about that. And um, and then I do a lot of advising work with different um, companies and, and venture capital funds. And uh, it may sound like a lot of stuff, but for me, all those things feed into each other. You know, my okay. what I learn as an operator helps me become a better investor. What I learn by advising companies helps me become a better operator. Um, it's just all one kind of concentric loop. Fantastic. Okay, so let's start with your journey with Flow. And then we'll talk about how that journey led you to Flow. But uh, what, are you, what, 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 are, what were your last two years look like? I mean, they've been incredibly intense. So um, they've been incredibly intense, but maybe just to set a, a quick caveat, that was something that I that I knew, that was something that I expected, and I was really excited about that. And yeah, to maybe tee it up a little bit, you know, so Flow this year is uh, turning 10. Um, so it's been around for quite a while. So I joined when it was eight years old, and um, I joined to try to turn the business around. You know, we had a, a, um, a product that had a lot of people that loved it, that used it, but we're in an incredibly crowded and competitive marketplace. And, um, you know, I knew that going in, I've mm -hmm. have a whole new appreciation for that now after competing in that marketplace for, for two years. Um, but what we've really, so, you know, to kind of walk through the major steps, I came in, I tried to learn as much as I, I could from the team that was here about, um, mm -hmm. you know, what we've tried previously, why the product looks and works the way that it does, how we got to the feature set that we have and kind of, you know, why we exist, like, like, why do we deserve to be here? You know, what are we building? that's different and better than what other people have to offer in the market. And then we went about trying to, you know, double down on that and really refine those points. And, and what that ended up looking like was, you know, so I spent, say, the first three to six months on the job really learning. There's a ton to learn. We've got a huge product. We've got a very wide swath of different customers that, that use our, our platform for very different things. So there was a lot to learn there. Then I, I took about, um, you know, 
I don't know, a year and a half. And so there's a little bit of overlap there to redesign the product. We ended up relaunching a whole new version of it called FlowX last year. Uh, that's gone really well. And, you know, since then, we're never done. We're never finished. We're always trying to make it better. So um, we've continued to chip away at that. And we've got some updates we've been working on that some of them have started to ship recently. And we've been calling this Flow 10.5. And it's kind of the, the next iteration of the platform. And it's been, you know, really, really well received so far by our customers, which has been exciting. Fantastic. So I have two questions. Let, let, let's start with the easy one first. Okay. So I can kind of relate to you because I recognize myself as a maker first and then operator second. You are a designer first and then operator second. How do you balance between both of these two roles? Because um, making or designing something means directly uh, implementing your things over there. But operating something is you build a machine, which is the company that builds the thing. So uh, what, 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 is, what, uh, what were your challenges? How did you try to balance between these two uh, roles? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I would like to say, I would like to think I've gotten better at that over time, but you know, it's really, it's really challenging, you know, and I think you have to find if you, you know, the way I kind of think about that sometimes is design is, I've now done it for so long. I've got a huge breadth of experience, you know, I've got um, from working at companies like Apple and Square and, um, you know, with brands like Disney and Apple and Nike and, and a bunch of others. And so I try to take that and really use that to, um, you know, shape and take some of how I operate a company to the next level. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm not using that design skill set every day. I always love, okay. you know, having a, a little bit of a, um, you know, focused block to actually be able to get into the weeds and work on something um, as a design problem. But honestly, it much more shapes how I think about things like, you know, so with Flow, one of the things we've done over the last two years is update the branding of the company and really think a lot more deeply about what our mission is and, you know, why we deserve to be here. And in all of those, um, it would be very different. And I'd be significantly handicapped if I didn't have, if I haven't done that multiple times for multiple different companies, companies that I've run, companies that where I've worked as an outside consultant for, um, you know, so that's one example. And, you know, then there are other things like how I use that skill set to shape uh, FlowX and, and Flow 10.5, which is what we've been working on. Um, and, uh, you know, how I even think about about problems but really for me i think what might be helpful for people is just boiling down what design is and you know i think for every person that's a designer I actually think there are very different definitions of what the role is and what your job is what your focus is while you're in the role um, but for me what it really is is i think now especially if you know in my work leading teams, leading companies, and using design as a skill set to kind of do that, it really is. I see design as an incredible competitive advantage. Why? Because every single industry now is is crowded, you know, and, and the barrier to entry has been dropped to the floor. There's more capital than ever flowing around. So what that means is no matter what industry you're in, you're up against a lot of competition, you know, and I think wherever I look today, I, I see that. And one of the conversations I have with, with companies and teams is, you know, um, how do they understand and think about the, the landscape? How do they understand and think about their superpower and what they're really like, what are the hills or what are the ideas or the principles that they're really willing to live and die on and, and you know, understanding those deeply? And then how do they thread that through? Because I think design in a lot of ways is you, it's underpinned by philosophy. So as an example, you know, if you're doing a rebranding, um, I think, a you know, a really naive way to approach it would just be like, well, what do I think would look cool? Or what would look really different in this industry? I think a much better way to approach it 
would be to say, you know, let me really deeply understand this company. And then let me mm -hmm. think about how to bring that to life and really visualize that um, and make that real and tangible by how we, you know, um, execute that. That could be everything from the type choice to the color choice to the shape choice for something like a symbol. And so for me, just again, just to maybe reiterate it, design is building out a competitive advantage that's more relevant than ever. And I think when you approach it that way, then it really opens up the scope of how that can help you. Fantastic. Okay. So uh, you gave a very interesting segue to my next question, which was a difficult question. So before I ask the question, I need some context. How old was the company flow when you joined as Eight years old. Eight years old when you, when you came in. Okay. So what would you say was your biggest impact on the journey of the company? Was it um, in the product? Was it in the growth? Was it in the design? Was it in the positioning? What would you say was your biggest impact in the journey of the company? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, the impact that I've had is to revitalize a company that I think is doing something really interesting in a space that um, I think could use better design, you know, products. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, it's a really challenging question to answer. I mean, over the last two years, we've tried to both, you know, and I, there's a word, there's a word um, that I came across a year ago um, that someone told me and, and I'd never heard it before. It's a little awkward and clunky, but I love it. And it, it's called, it's uh, repristinate. And, you know, okay. it comes from pristine, making something like it's new. And the mm -hmm. term, uh, terminology is used a lot in architecture or in paintings or in something where you've got something that's been around for a while. You know, it's maybe decayed a little bit, uh, aged a little bit, and you're trying to bring it back to this kind of strongest, best version of itself. And that was really, I think, what I was trying to do in the company and, and why that's important for me is I wasn't trying to make this, you know, my company. I wasn't trying to kind of take my ideas to it. I was trying to really deeply understand why did it succeed in the first place? Because it succeeded on a on an amazing level, you know, as a completely bootstrap company. Why has it maybe, um, you know, degraded a bit over time? I think a lot of that came down to competition in this space and, and maybe just some um, misallocated kind of priorities or focus over, over periods of time. And then, you know, why do we deserve to be here and what can we uniquely bring to the market that nobody else can? And so I tried to, you know, go through kind of those gates and then um, use that to try to bring the company back to some of its, you know, former glory. And I think some of the um, ways that that showed up is in things like churn, is in things like organic growth. And, you know, one of my ideas early on that I wasn't sure how realistic it was, but it kind of intuitively made sense to me was I wanted to, um, so I, I've worked in a lot of venture-backed companies and venture-backed companies, you know, they have uh, typically quite a lot of capital and they're a little bit less careful and thoughtful about when they spend a dollar uh, versus when they don't. In a bootstrap company, you know, you know this as well as I do, every dollar you spend, you really feel that spend because that dollar can go to many other things. It can go to hiring a teammate. It can go into the product. It can go into, um, you know, your technology stack. It can go into R&D, something you might be building, you know, uh, some, something you think is an interesting opportunity down the road. So that can really go multiple places. And um, one thought I've had over time is, you know, I've worked in these companies both before they've turned on advertising, after they've turned on advertising. And, um, you know, one thing I took away from that was I think advertising really gives, uh, it's like an anti-gravity machine. You know, it kind of takes all of your metrics and puts them up to a level that they're not, mm -hmm. they're not really at, you know, and you kind of maybe understand that a little bit, but I don't think people understand that um, super well. And so in my mind, when you take, when you go into a company that's maybe been using advertising, you shut that advertising off. What you're really starting to see is the true underlying realities in the business. You know, what does churn look like? Actually, what does growth look like? Actually, when you're not going out in, in advertising and, mm -hmm. you know, going and finding kind of eyeballs. And so this, the, the idea that I had was, I think, or naturally, if you've got a healthy company, um, you should see 
slight month over month organic growth with no advertising spend. And so that was really what we were chasing. And, you know, we've achieved that since the FlowX launch, which has been really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's always a journey of like, how do you dial that up and, and how do you make that better? But literally we had not grown organically in the entire 18 months before we shipped FlowX. We were contracting, you know, pretty significantly month over month. And the thought, the thought process there the whole time was, um, that's okay. We kind of have to tune out that noise. Why? Because the only way we're going to stop churn is by doing the hard work, you know. And I think that some of the way that I thought about that was, you know, as a principal in um, engineering technology, you know, tech debt or technology debt. And the idea is you've kind of been not focused on, um, I don't know, you've been trying to take a handful of different shortcuts, which have consequences and costs that you haven't paid up yet. Those build up over time. And I'm sorry, but there's no way around it. You know, at the end of the day, you're dealing with the physical world and, and, uh, you've got to, um, you know, pay those debts. And so that's really what we were doing is trying to tune out the world, pay those debts. So we can be in a better position to be able to grow. And so frankly, you know, one, one, uh, term that I've always loved is, um, in business or in investing, that you've got to earn the right to take risk, you know, and, and I love that principle because um, what that really means is, hey, this isn't supposed to be easy. You've got to go in and you have to do the work. And if you do the work and you set the foundation right, then you get the chance to have fun. You get the chance to go and spend money. You know, you get, you get to go use advertising or you get to go write that big check, you know, and um, if we're thinking about it from the investment perspective. But first, you have to pay your dues. And so we were paying our dues. Uh, we ended up shipping FlowX. You know, I think uh, we've, we've seen some remarkable results since then, but we've still got a lot of work to do. Wow. Wow. This is, this is brilliant. Okay. So with all of this journey that we got to know about Flow, I'm very intrigued about your beginnings. You have had your stints at Square, at Apple, Disney, Nike. You worked with these brands. Uh, where, where were the beginnings? How did you start? I mean, incredibly humbly, to be super honest. So I... Um, really frankly fell into design. I was lucky enough to grow up in a house where my parents encouraged our passion. So whatever we were passionate about, they were like, what can we do to help support you? And you know, what I mean by that was for, I don't know, five years, I really was into Taekwondo and martial arts. My parents would, you know, pay for me to go to to Taekwondo and uh, which is, you know, amazing thing. And um, the other thing that they did from a very early age is just really support and try to do whatever they could to feed into our interests. So one way that we did that early on was as a family, we would literally go to the library, you know, this is, is, so we're getting books for free and we're checking them out for 30 days, all of that stuff. But for us, we, you know, uh, we lived in a pretty um, not super awesome area um, in Southern California. So we would literally travel an hour to get to what felt like a good library. And then we would all break apart. We'd all go to our interests. So, you know, I'd maybe be in the martial arts section or mm-hmm. checking out cars or something like that. My uh, brother, who's now um, in the army and has been incredibly successful there, you know, was off kind of learning about that. I have another brother who's an engineer and uh, has been at Coinbase for the last few years. And he was, you know, would go off and break off and study engineering. And I think that was something where it's so simple because all you're investing is kind of time and energy. And you're saying, hey, this thing that you love, go and do it. You know, let's go get you, you know, kind of more books and, and help you learn more about it. So I think that's really important. And the reason that's important is, you know, I don't have a college degree. I actually dropped out of college to pursue design. And so the way it really worked was, I stumbled into design and design for me was this obsession uh, and this love, you know, with, of being able to take an idea in my head or take mm-hmm. a problem that I was solving for some for somebody else to design that and try to figure out a solution for it and then to be able to, sh- to share it. And I just got really addicted with that process, with that kind of loop and that process. And um, 
so I just started, you know, and this is the way I've kind of done everything. Even if we talk about investing or if we switch tax there, I, um, for all intensive purposes, you know, if someone would look at my background and say, you have no reason to be investing. And, you know, that was, um, it was just an interest of mine. And so all I started doing was I just focused on how quickly can I learn? And the concept that I have in my mind is this idea of a, you know, a growth curve. And it's basically, you're getting from a very simplistic low level up to some level of mastery. How quickly can you do that? How kind of, how, how can you maybe jumpstart that? Or how can you make sure you're climbing that as quickly as possible? And, you know, at the investing, it was just, let's put some capital to work. I just need to start making, making investments. And that's really the way you learn. You don't, you don't learn if, if the, if the job is, um, you know, uh, making investments in companies, I'm sorry, there's no a number of reading white papers or reading, um, you know, stories of companies that got acquired. That's going to make you a better investor. The only way to go and do it is get some reps. And, and so that's the same approach I took to design. I said, okay, here's this thing that I love. I can go to school and learn about design. That's not really design. You know, design at the end of the day is this really messy, complicated process of, you're not solving your own problems. You're solving someone else's problems. And those could be a company's problems, a client's problems. And so what that inherently means is there's a lot of really, really, really difficult soft skills you have to learn. You have to learn how to present work and in a way that connects with whatever client or company you're working with. You have to learn how to take feedback. You have to learn how to discuss ideas and approaches. You have to learn how to, um, you know, kind of uh, produce a project and think about timelines. You have to learn all of these things. And I'm sorry, but again, in my mind, and I still feel this very strongly, you're not going to learn those in school. The act of, you know, the act of design is only learned by designing. And so all that's a long winded way of saying, you know, I fell into design and I just knew I wanted to do it. So I first started doing it for free, uh, literally just trying to get any work that I could. And then I just went up that growth curve. So, you know, I had enough free work where I could finally put together a portfolio to get some paid work. Didn't have great clients to start out with. That's okay. You do more work, you get better clients and you just continue to progress. And then it all clicked into place for me one day when I got my first real job in design to go and work for DDB, which is an advertising agency in Los Angeles. That then led me um, to get an offer to come and work at Apple. And, um, you know, from there, it's been a series of, of kind of jumps. You know, they all kind of make sense in hindsight. But really, I think, you know, just to boil it down, it's I'm obsessively curious and I am always learning, always thinking, always trying new things. And that's just really innate in me. I don't have to stoke that or try to think about ways to be more curious. And then I just let myself, you know, kind of um, take the leap into that curiosity, whether it's for investing, whether it's for design. And, um, you know, I think hopefully try to pay my dues again and, and get better opportunities down the road. Well, okay. So I think this is one common thread among all the creative people that I have ever spoken to in my life and also resembles my to my journey. Uh, you, you said something very interesting. You have to just put in reps. You start with being absolutely wrong, then slightly less wrong, then slightly less wrong, slightly less wrong. Eventually you are, you get tried and then absolutely right. Okay. So, and you also mentioned something about you are always learning. What was the last thing that you uh, learned or formed a habit probably? So always learning for me just means it means a few things. It means every single day, you know, actually one thing we were we were chatting about doing this interview, one of the questions that you wrote down that, you know, you might want to discuss is if you could magically get an extra hour in the day, what would you do with it? Literally what I would do with it is just sit and think and or read because that is I, I you know, depending on the day, depending on what I have going on. Um, I always feel like I want and could use and would love more time to just think and to read. And so um, for me, it just starts with carving out that time. And I try to carve out that time, you know, however I can. 
And right now it's a little bit more challenging. We've got a three month old at home. I've got a three year old who just started preschool, um, you know, an intense job for the last two years and really for all of my career since I started working um, when I was 15. And so um, how that typically lo- looks is, you know, at this point, I'm, I spend probably two, three hours at night before I go to bed, um, just honestly allowing, like kind of indulging in whatever I'm most interested in. And I think that's another thing. And, you know, I don't know if people listening will be familiar with Naval Ravikant, um, mm-hmm. uh, Angelist and, and a couple of the companies, um, but he has an amazing, one of the things that I love that he's kind of crystallized into a point that I'm like, it's just better said than I've ever heard it said is, you know, um, so many people are focused on like, I started this book, I need to just push through and I've got to finish this book. And this whole idea that no, what you're really trying to optimize for, whether it's reading, or whether it's, you know, in in any form of learning, is you just want to stay interested and stay engaged. Because if you stay interested, you're going to want to spend more time there. But if you're struggling through pushing through like, God, I, I don't like this book, but I need to finish it. That is not going to be good. And so what I you know, the way I've kind of translated that is, I am just constantly reading. And what that looks like is, you know, I mentioned before, but I have a lot of, I have a lot of interests. I think more interests than, than most people would, would think that one would have time, time for. But, you know, so last night, for instance, I, I've been doing everything from looking at, I've been working on a handful of public equity portfolios over the last few years, and I finally made some breakthroughs there. So I was just tinkering around with like, what does that portfolio look like? Uh, It may not sound like much. I've I've also been reading a bunch of um, investment manager letters. I will read books. One of the books, um, well, I'm reading the, I've got the Naval Ravikant book in my backpack now, but I also have other books on how to lead yourself, you know, just making time for reflection. And so I'm constant, I'm just constantly, you know, learning. And I think the main thing there, just to boil it down again, is I think you have to don't guilt trip yourself about what you're interested in. Just allow yourself the um, the grace to be obsessed about anything, you know, and it doesn't have to apply to your day job. And I think that's been one of the things that has paid the most dues for me is I read all over the map. I've got books about engineering. I've got books about complexity theory. I've got books about, you know, baseball and, and sports. I've got books about, you know, consumer um, products and habit building. And, you know, I'm just looking literally at my stack of <laughs> my stack of books in my office. And for me, just one principle is that everything in the world is connected. So if I spend time learning about something that may seem has no application to what I do today, literally, I've never had an instance where I haven't found some connection later on in something that I'm learning or has made me a better manager or a better, um, you know, designer or a better investor. So I think, again, everything's related. It's a concentric loop. Just allow yourself to be obsessed and curious. Daniel, could I say one thing? Yeah. You are one, you, you are one hell of a man. I mean, I have so many questions and running low on time. So let me change tracks uh, and let, and let's see if we have some time, we can jump back to um, this conversation. Let me change tracks. So, Let's start with the second phase and the easiest question. What does your day look like? I mean, you're doing too many yeah. things. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't. Yeah, some days it feels like that. Hopefully <laughs> most days it doesn't. Um, so what my day looks like today is, um, I don't know, if we, I'll, I'll zoom out just to give people the kind of, <laughs> not, not warts and all, but, you know, the like entire uh, gist of how my day goes. So, you know, at this point, we've got a three-year-old, or sorry, a three-month-old, like I mentioned. So you know, waking up a lot of times in the night, but um, now we're now at a point where we're getting pretty good sleep, you know, maybe six, 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 six and a half hours of sleep per night. Um, and then I've got a three-year-old and, and typically, 
at about 5 a.m. Um, I'll go down. He'll wake up initially. I'll go down, kind of hang out with him in his room, sleep with him in his room for a little bit. Then we'll get up together. I typically am out of um, the house, kind of headed into work sometime around 8, maybe 8.30. And then I'm in the office typically 9, 9, 9, 9.30, 10, something around that. And, you know, that's one thing I would just say is I think for anyone listening or anyone that doesn't have kids yet, man, you are in an incredibly privileged position where you own a hundred percent of your time. When you have kids, one thing I've really had, um, when you have kids in a family, you just have other obligations. One thing I've really had to get better at is not beating myself up and giving myself the, um, I had someone actually tell me, uh, maybe a year and a half ago and it was like such an aha moment for me, but I was working with a coach at the, at the time. And, um, he said something that I was like, this is weird. You know, this is a really weird thing to say from a coach, but he was like, you need to give yourself a break, you know, because you've mm-hmm. got really high expectations of yourself and that's fine. But you're now at a point in your life where there are other things that are equally as important, whether it's going home in time for dinner, whether it's, you know, making it, uh, taking a, a, some time away to go to a doctor's appointment for one of the kids, you know, one of the kids or something like that. And that's been a really important principle is just not beating myself up. And so, you know, Honestly, there are not many days where I'm like, I've done absolutely everything I wish I could have done and hoped I could have done. There's always stuff that falls off that list, but I really just try to focus on, um, you know, the most important things um, in a given day. And so that's one that's, you know, maybe that leads us back. But typically when I get into the office, what I'll try to do is just put together a, a map for the day. And I'm typically thinking about this the night before, but really how I try to carve that out is. Um, you know, I, I, and I'll often do this literally on paper. I try to note out, just write down my schedule of meetings in a day. Cause I kind of think like, those are things I can't miss. Those are obviously the rocks. They can't really be moved around then, you know, so I always write a list of that down. Then I've got a separate list that really breaks down into two things. And one is what are the absolute essential things? And when I say things, you know, you typically want to have like one, two, three of those. And so those are the ones mm-hmm. uh, in my mind that are just critical to, to get done. It's, you know, uh, and it could be as small as the email I can't not send. It could be as big as, you know, I, um, you know, wire this or deliver this or, you know, discuss this with the team, but try to break it onto a handful of priorities. Then I have a separate section of the list that I treat as like sprints. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, like everyone, you also have personal stuff to do in a day. And so I try to group that together and I'll literally put a bucket down and I'll, um, depending on how much stuff I have to do that day, I'll try to time cap it. And so what that means is I'll typically always say, you know, here's the list of personal things. So it could be, you know, pay this bill, uh, you know, email this person, you know, go and register the car or whatever it is. And I'll try to time cap that. So I'll put down something like 15 or 30 minutes and I literally have a cube timer and I'll turn that on time myself and try to treat it like an actual sprint. And I'm trying to get through those things as quickly as possible. And so, you know, um, going back to it, like no two days are alike, but my day always has some meetings, some deep work, some work that's, you know, not deep, but kind of needs to get done. And I try to just deal with those things the best way. And for me, the best way to do that is know what my meetings are, try to keep meeting slash schedule time to an absolute minimum, which is controversial, but I feel pretty strongly about (laughs) have a real clear sense of the priorities. Cause I know one thing I've noticed about myself is on the days I don't have a clear sense of priorities. It's just way easier to get off the rails, you know, way easier to spend too much time on something that's doesn't, that you shouldn't have spent that much time on. And then, you know, treat the things that need to get done 
but aren't necessarily a priority as sprints. And I and by having those kind of different, where I've got you know kind of uh, deep work time, meeting time, sprint time, it helps uh, make the day a little bit more serendipitous and fun. Anyways, and so then I'll typically that kind of gets me through my day, and we're breezing through that a little bit. And then I'll typically head home around five. We've got dinner. We all try to eat dinner every single night together at home around six, and you know, put the, put, um, our three-year-old to bed at seven 30. And then from then on, it's actually my time. And so what that typically looks like is, um, you know, just a lot of reading. Got it. I'm sure you would not work, uh, after you are home, but do you still think of work? Oh yeah. Nonstop. Not, not nonstop. And I, yeah, I think that's something I had to get comfortable with is, um, typically how I'm thinking about it. So here's one thing that I've learned over time is when I go home, uh, I try to really pay attention to what's bubbling up in my mind if it's work related. And typically what that means is um, when I'm home, I, the things that are bubbling up are either things that I've blanked on that didn't write down, aren't on my to-do list. And so I just immediately grab my phone, put that into a to-do list, uh, put that down as an action item. So I stop thinking about it and then I actually get it done the next day. Um, so that's one kind of class of things. I think another is just something that I, there's stress or tension or anxiety around. And with that, I really try to, especially at night, obviously not feed on any of that, not worry about it too much. It's a time to really kind of compartmentalize that. But I try to note it because I think it's really important that, you know, just for for anyone who wants to be successful and effective, the more you take on, you there is absolutely no way where you're not as long you know you're taking on the stuff you're excited about. So for me, that's you know um, investing and advising work that's on top of what I do every single day. I'm also taking on a lot of stress and anxiety about those things, you know. And so um, if you want to do more, stress and anxiety can come come with that. And so I've really just had to learn how to you know engage with that in the best way. And one way that's absolutely essential for me is. Um, if I'm at home, especially if it's at night, I am not in a position to be able to solve that. So I try not to think about it too much, but what I'll try to do is just note it and then ask myself, you know, why am I worried about this? And, and if I, and sometimes it's like, well, it's this problem and I just haven't sat down and grappled with it and put down in writing or, or typed up, you know, what I think the solution is. Well, great. Then I don't need to spin about it and have a ton of anxiety at night. I can just note that on my list for the next day. But that's why I think it's really important. It's kind of like a meditation principle. You know, note what bubbles up. Try to get a little bit lower level of like, why is that bubbling up? And then try to tee it up for tomorrow and just not engage with it in a given night. Okay. So you have said some very incredible things. Uh, let, let me point to them one by one. First, you talked about stress and anxiety coming up uh, with all the things that you take. But as a curious mind, you tend to take more and more stuff. How do you manage between? So do you say no to things? And if you do say no to things, uh, how do you evaluate? How do you say, uh, hey, this is a yes bucket. This is a no bucket. This should go over here. This should go over here. How do you evaluate or figure out what do you want to say yes to? Yeah, no, it's a great, um, it's a great question. And I think it's one that I'm always trying to get a little bit better at. Because I think that's, um, you know, in, in life, I think there are these meta skills that you're never really done mastering. You know, you can always improve at and I think are the true force multipliers. And I would say one of those is what am I spending my time on and what meets that mm -hmm. bar? You know, what doesn't? And um, for me, I definitely say no to things, you know, and, and I think if you're taking on more stuff and you're not also saying no to more things, you're, you're doing it wrong. You know, it's like it'd be like, um, you know, looking at more uh, potential investments and not saying no more often. Clearly there's something wrong there. You're probably doing, you know, more, or you're probably getting and investing in kind of lower quality deals over time. So I think you got to keep that bar high. Um, and typically, you know, how I try to think about what to say yes to and what, what to say no to is 
for me, it really goes back to something I try to do monthly uh, in maybe an hour or two and quarterly, uh, I don't know, maybe a half day is just really sit down and get crystal clear about where am I headed next? You know, and, and for me, I think um, that's not necessarily five-year goals, but it's something like over the next typically one, two, three months, you know, what are the big important things to get done? What are the big important things that I want to do? And that's also a process of saying no, you know, by doing that, if you're doing it right, you're saying yes to some things and the bar is really high. So if you're saying yes to something, you know, you're really going to invest a lot of yourself into it and you're doing it at the expense of other things. Um, and you've got to say no to some things. And, and the reason I think that's important and why I start there is one thing that I've recognized is if I don't do that longer term planning, if I don't have mm -hmm. as clear a picture idea as possible about where I'm going over the next say, quarter, um, that affects everything downstream. And what's downstream is what am I doing this month? What am I doing this week? What am I doing today? So I think it all starts with that kind of, you know, North Star of just where am I headed over the next quarter? Then I try to boil it down to monthly. Then I try to boil it down to weekly. And um, from there, I think it's just an act of, you know, trying to survive and thrive on, on any given on any given day. And um, trying to think if there's anything else that's 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 helpful. I mean, it's something we can certainly talk about, but you know, and you kind of alluded to there is um, that I, I'm curious and I've taken on more and more things, and that's true. I'm definitely mm -hmm. at a point now where I am being very selective about what I take on, and I'm actively trying to have just a couple of things. But those couple of things, I think, for me, seem manageable, but for some people, might not. You know, so something like, for instance, the public equity portfolio stuff. I've been spending a lot of time there. I love it. I, I would do that, you know, if I make no money on it. I just really enjoy that process. I think for a lot of people, they would think, oh, it's not worth the effort. I'm just not going to do that. You know, so some of it is also just deeply personal. And I think that's another thing is I just always try to lean into, and it kind of goes back to that Naval Ravikant quote. I just try to stay in the zone of, man, I'm so excited about this. And I love <laughs> learning about this. And I love doing this. And, and um, again, like, allowing myself to really lean into that and knowing that that's really the true engine that's kind of a power has powered me over time to take on bigger and bigger challenges wow okay so i'll just avoid all the other questions because uh, there's this one burning question now which sure. came from your answer i have been i've been in a situation where you say yes to something and it is exciting but then over period you realize it's not exciting you anymore no. but when it comes to say reading a book and keeping the book away it's fine because it's just you and the book Yep. But when you but, but when there are other people involved and you have made a commitment and you have said yes to something and then you are not interested in it anymore. So how do you exit from your commitment? So that that is a much more difficult question. And I think that yes. that's, <laughs> it, um, you know, I, I think just a couple, a couple quick observations. One thing I've learned over time and just been okay with is I think once you get to a certain level in, in life, um, you know, where you have a big enough opportunity set, there's just going to be, there are going to be instances. It's just a reality. It's kind of like in hiring, you know, anyone that's ever been a CEO of a company or responsible for hiring knows that you can be as detailed and methodical and have this crazy mapped out process. There are still going to be people that you say yes to, and then join and you say, yeah, I just don't think this is the right fit. And so I think that mm -hmm. that, you know, that applies to other areas of life. And, and um, the, the, maybe the insight I draw from that is, the world is just way more complex than we give it credit for. And there's always going to be instances where, you know, we don't notice something, we don't recognize something, we don't see it until, you know, kind of we're in it. And so then I think the question becomes, when do you push through and when do you decide to actually draw a line in the sand? And that is really, really, really difficult. And I think what I try to do there is um, I kind of flex between the two. So I'll give you an, ex you know, an example. 
there are quite a few aspects of my life that, um, you know, any given day, the the work might feel like a drag. Even you know, maybe to go back to, um, I'll give you two examples. One mm-hmm. is you know a podcast. So I've had a podcast for the last nine months. It's called Outliers uh, with Daniel Scrivener. Anyone that's listening, if you want to hear more interviews with investors, entrepreneurs, and iconoclasts like Academy Award winners and um, people that have built you know really big half a billion dollar, billion dollar companies, um, those are the sorts of people that I interview on on that show. I love doing it, but the producing a podcast is so much work. I think is, you know, as you yes. know, it is way it, uh, from the outside looking in, you're like, oh, this is nice. You just have a little conversation. You write up a couple notes, but, um, you know, when you're actually doing it, it is a, uh, a lot of, of work and a lot of kind of production work involved. So with that, you know, it's not, uh, there are days where I'm like, man, we're, just, we're behind or this isn't as easy, you know, and it, typically that's what it, what's for me is, the underlying feeling is this isn't as easy as I, as I think it should feel or, or as I want it to feel. And I think with that, when, it, when that's the sensation and that's what it boils down to, nine times out of 10, I'm just going to keep pushing through. And, and the reason I think that's important is um, as long as, again, directionally, I'm really excited. As long as, you know, I, I don't know, you kind of, I look at the lowest level, like, do I actually enjoy doing the work? On the podcast, mm-hmm. yes, I love interviewing people. I, I leave kind of those interviews just so excited and feeling like I've learned so much. Um, and then directionally, you know, I think it's a great place to to spend time. I just really enjoy. I really enjoy doing it. So that's an example where it's not easy, but I think it's important to push through. Same thing is true with other stuff in life, like with the investing work, the, um, and with these public equity portfolios. I've been so driven to do this because I've just wanted to have my own, you know, kind of portfolios and ideas about these baskets of investments. But it is brutally difficult. Everything has been difficult. You know, setting up an account with interactive brokers took I think, 60 days to get set up and 60 days of just frustration. I'm um, using the tool set to anyone that um, is in fintech. You know, God bless you. Hopefully you're building better and more beautiful tools. But the tool set that exists today is atrocious, you know, and so uh, it's just a lot of it's not the actual work is difficult. And there I just have to push through because I'm so excited Um, in terms of when you draw a line in the sand. I think that's much more difficult. And honestly, I think that is more of a personal um, I think it's really important to boil that down and make an individual decision about it, not have it be objective, because I think what's important there is one, your values, you know how, um, based on your values, are you comfortable pulling the ripcord? Do you, you know, um, period, do you want to get to a certain level where you feel like you've given it enough energy and effort and as much of a chance as possible to succeed? Um, you know, how do you handle it when you do really need to leave? How, how, how do you try to balance being respectful of this commitment that you made along with just, you know, knowing that this isn't right for you. And all of those things are extremely difficult. And um, I think that's why it's just really important that you make you boil it down to a personal values driven decision, and try to make it from from kind of that basis, if that makes sense. Okay, so so the last part, and whenever you have to say, um, backtrack from uh, earlier commitment from somebody, how do you let them down? Do you do it face to face over a phone call? Or do you try to be empathetic? Uh, how, How really do you do it? Uh, yeah. And I mean, that one, I think I've um, hopefully um, gotten better at over time, you know, and I think um, my, my approach there has changed a lot over time. And I think the way I try to think about that now is, um, and I think this is an area where for me, you know, there's this quote, you know, hard decisions, easy life, easy decisions, hard life. I think this applies so much there because, you know, I, and I've done this, you know, recently where I've had to, um, I was exploring, you know, advising a company um, about two weeks in. 
I just didn't feel like it was the right fit. So I needed to figure out how to communicate that. And, um, you know, typically what I try to do is I think then once you get to the point where you know what the decision is, then I think it becomes about how can I um, make this in the most humane, empathetic kind of warm way possible. And that's something that I didn't always used to do. And, and, you know, I, I see a lot of people kind of taking other approaches, you know, and I think the reason it's so difficult there is every part of you, when, when you're the person that says, Hey, this isn't for me, every part of you, um, you know, does not want to, you don't want to let the other person down. You don't want to tell the person, no, you don't want to hurt their feelings. You don't want to have this difficult discussion. Just every part of you is screaming, just let me leave. I just want out as quickly as possible. And typically what that, what I've seen, and I've, you know, had this happen to me a lot of times, which is how I've taken this approach over time is people just choose the lowest energy and effort way to kind of opt out. And I think what ends up happening there is you burn that bridge in that relationship because you, you frankly, it would, no one, what I've come to over time is if, if you can, there are difficult decisions in life that you have to have. If you lean into those and you put yourself on the line and you phone the other person up or you meet with them, you tell them face to face, it is going to be insanely difficult. That's going to be a day where you're like, this is, you know, this is a, this is a lot for me to, for me to kind of be able to handle and process that day. But I, there's never been an instance where I've done that and I've regretted it. And always, 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 even when it's been very contentious, when you do that, I think you acknowledge the other person, you give them grace, you give them empathy, you know, you treat them like another human. And in my mind, it also goes back to, you know, golden rule. And I think this is an area where the golden rule is super applicable. If you're having a hard time knowing how to approach it, just think if I was in this other person's shoes, what would be the way that I would want to learn about this and have this conversation and, and do that? And, um, you know, so I think I've gotten there over time. And, and just one other thing I'll, I'll tell people, and um, this might make sense, but, you know, I talked a little bit about how I map out my day. There's a few things on that, on, on my kind of daily map thing that don't change. And that is every single day, I try to spend some time meditating, walking meditation, sitting for five minutes, 15 minutes. Um, and that's ebbed and flowed over time, but I try to carve out time for that every single day. And I'm trying to think of, there's a couple, yeah, there's a couple other random, you know, health related ones, but one that I have on there that I added a couple years ago is just says level up. And I can only okay. check off that box if I feel like I have, you know, kind of gone above and beyond myself and, and done something great. And the days, the, the days when I'm so happy that I put that box down are days where I need to have that difficult conversation because, you know, I, I can pat myself on the back. I can feel great knowing that every part of me did not want to do that. It was not fun. It was not easy. It was not comfortable, but I did. It. And it's, I'm, I'm better for it. The person I had this conversation is better for it. You know, our relationship is better for it. And that's a day where I get to check off that box, you know, and other examples are, um, you know, days where I will, um, you know, try to do something special for my wife. I get to check off that box, you know, days where I had a day full of meetings and I really didn't want to work out, but I went and worked out. I get to check off that box. And so maybe if, if, uh, people take away nothing else from this, from this interview, put a level up box on your checklist every single day and kind of make it a competition with yourself of when you get to check that off. And as an example, even just yesterday, you know, I was getting to the end of the day and I was just feeling like, man, I just, I don't think I'm going to check off that box today, you know? And then I ended up at night, I got home, I, you know, cranked through and, and figured something out and solved something I've been grappling with for a couple of days. And I was like, I did it, you know? So I think keeping that on there and uh, may, brings a little bit of kind of gamification and something fun and competitive to the day. Fantastic. Talk, talking of checklists, so what tools do you use? What tools does the CEO of Flow uses? 
So the tool I end up using most of the time is paper. And that may sound <laughs> totally ridiculous. I mean, and, and let me caveat that real quick. I use paper for kind of everything that I need to use. I use it almost like my operating system for the, for the day. And the reason that I do that is a, a couple of things. One thing that I've been, that's been amazing over time is just getting more and more, I've gotten better and better at knowing when I should just close my computer. Cause I think something that okay. all of us, especially in COVID, especially, you know, uh, working remotely, it's so easy to just literally get sucked in by the screen all day long and never have any break where you're truly reflecting, truly getting time and space and energy. And so I think it's really important to close your screen. If everything you're doing for the day is on your screen, you're never going to close your screen. So I think one really simple thing is just, I try to start my day off in a calm, peaceful moment where my computer's closed. I maybe have some kind of, you know, kind of focus music. I, I've been really enjoying this app, Indel, E-N-D-E-L, which anyone mm -hmm. can get turn on and Headspace has some really nice focus music, but I'll try to put that on just to get my space, kind of my head and my body in the, in the right place. And then, you know, I'll engage on that piece of paper. And then what I try to do throughout the day is anytime I get an opportunity, close my computer, go back to that piece of paper, really reflect on, is there something that's bubbled up that I haven't noted down here? What should, what's the most important thing that I do next? And, and I try to just be really conscious about that. And so I think for me, it just goes back to at the beginning of the day, I try to paint a picture of what the day should ideally look like. And then, every, you know, throughout the day, moment by moment, I'm always trying to think about, well, what's the most important thing I can do now? And, you know, what that might mean is I go from the second item on my to-do list to the 10th item, to the fifth item, to the sixth item. Um, and I try to do that for two reasons. One is if you allow yourself to make that choice of what am I most mm -hmm. excited to work on right now, I think that's just a life improver, especially if you have a lot of stuff to do. And then the second is something I don't think we often, we think about enough is you know, whether it's circadian rhythms, we all have, our bodies all have very different circadian, you know, rhythms, depending on when you wake up, when you go to sleep, uh, metabolically based off your diet and exercise, you know, your energy level, your ability to focus, your ability to do deep work or fast work fluctuates wildly throughout the day and literally day by day. Like if, you know, yesterday, I'm just going to make something up, but say yesterday I had cold brew in the morning. Great. I'm ready to go for like four hours straight because I just <laughs> slammed this massive amount of caffeine but that's not something I want to do every single day. And so I, I find just a lot of freedom and a lot of, um, you know, just improved productivity by being able to balance around on that list. So let me just quickly talk about the other things. I, um, I, we obviously use flow to work together as a team. So anything that's a team task where someone on the team has assigned something to me, or I've assigned it to somebody else on the team, or we're just looking at, we also use it to plan all of our product work, whether it's engineering and design work, all of that stuff happens in flow. It doesn't happen on my piece of paper, but what I'll then do is translate everything from the app onto my piece of paper. So again, I just have this one single source of truth. I don't have to bounce around between different tools and I can prioritize that within the other things that I need to get done in a day. So we obviously use flow. It's amazing for anything that's team related because all the details are there, all the comments, the conversation is there, you know, you can, you can see all of the details. You can see what your week looks like. We can see what the project, you know, work looks like this week. Um, so that's really important. And then there's a bunch of other tools, you know, that I use throughout the day, but literally the most important one is paper and pencil. <laughs> and do you make this list even before looking at your mobile phone? No. So that's something, you know, maybe in a, in a dream world, I would love to be the person that wakes <laughs> up. It doesn't check my phone until I'm into the office. But I, what I try to do now is just, uh, I think what's most important for me is that I don't, I think just like your, um, 
and, and maybe this isn't true for everybody, but it's absolutely true for me. And, and it's something I'm deeply aware of is if I, I can easily get sucked in by my phone, you know, and just be popping from this app to that app or go see this or go look at this and, and 30 minutes could go by. And I don't think that's, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'll give you a great example. You know, I love Twitter. Twitter for me is it's it just, um, I can, you know, I, so I follow a bunch of investors I follow a bunch of entrepreneurs. I follow a bunch of people that I just think are doing interesting things. Obviously, you know, so there's thousands of tweets that get sent in a given day. And I think there are times or ways that you can look at that and be like, oh, it's a total waste of time. It's never a waste of time in my, in my mind, because there are always, I'll go through those. I'll find new ideas about companies I want to look at or articles I want to read or books I want to read. And so it's immensely valuable, but what's really important is I still have to constrain it. And what I, and that's what I mean by, I think when you are just always on your laptop or always on your computer, those devices don't lend themselves very easily to constraint. You know, they never say like, Hey, you've been using me for 30 minutes. Maybe you should take a break. You know, they just like continue Mm -hmm. to feed into this, this kind of journey that you're on. And so, um, I allow myself, you know, time to freely check Twitter and, you know, go wild and note all those things. <laughs> I just try to time box it throughout the day. And that's what goes back to my planning process in the morning is one thing I've definitely learned over time is if I structure my day where I say, okay, and this all, there's a bunch of other things, you know, I try to have two days a, a week that are totally meeting free. I try to have all my meetings be in the afternoon, typically from say one to two, you know, further on. And that's because, those days without meetings allow me to do much more deep focus work where I can't squeeze in an hour. I need like two, three, four hours to really move the needle on something. I, so I like religiously try to protect that time as good as I can, you know, and in any given week, I'll be success, somewhat successful, less successful at it. But I, I think as a focus, I'm always focused on that. The meetings in the afternoon, that's really important because for me, I'm, I, I think most clearly I'm just the most kind of awake and sharp in the morning. And so I want to use that really productively. And, and it's not that meetings are not a time where I want to be listening and awake and sharp, but you know, it's just, it's, it's different. And I think I always want to optimize for output and typically, I'm sorry, but meetings aren't output. Meetings are input, it's discussion. It's, you know, you're kind of getting aligned on things. It's not output. So I try to protect that time in the morning for, for output. And um, I'm trying to think if there's, if there's, anything else, but yeah, piece it when just going back to, so that's part of how I structure my day. And then the other thing is when I go in and I note those one, two, three priorities in the morning, typically those are deep work things. So it's like, I need to write this up and deliver this to this person, or I need to just make a decision here. And a lot of that for me, and I've tried to get better and better at that is just really leaning into writing memos to myself and writing things down on paper. Sounds super, super silly. And I think if you were to go back in time and tell me two years ago that I would be like writing memos to myself about things. I'd be like, Oh my God, I've gone off the deep end. <laughs> I've taken this CEO <laughs> thing just way too far. But what it is, what I, what it, the insight there is most things I think are, you actually just need to think about deeply and thinking about something deeply means you need to have time away from distractions to actually be able to engage with it. And then you need to collect your thoughts, process your thoughts, process your emotions, process, you know, ideas about something. And I think the best way that that happens is by writing. And so tip, you know, again, those morning times are, those are either design times or it's me sitting and thinking typically with a word doc open, um, you know, kind of um, just writing, writing stuff out. This is incredible. Uh, so while you were talking, I was trying to remember when was the last time I had uh, held a pen and wrote something on a piece of paper. I cannot remember it. I mean, I, I do write things that are going in my head, but all of that is in Google Docs. And uh, I don't even know uh, what my writing looks like 
what my handwriting looks like but uh, so what i'll do is i'll actually take this one part of your uh, uh, daily routine of uh, getting up in the morning writing the stuff down on a piece of paper and i'm going to try until uh, this episode comes out and then i'll also uh, write my uh, experience with your routine at the end of the episode what i felt i mean uh, i'm intrigued by this uh, uh, approach of using pen and paper i have not I, i just i never thought of it i thought um, to be more productive i just need to add a little bit more technology yeah. in your mind you are removing the technology and you're going back to basics yeah i think it just i think it in in my mind that's for a couple reasons i think obviously as someone who spent so much of my life in career in technology i think technology is incredibly important and powerful but i also recognize that it has a lot of limitations and there are a lot of things that i think you know and, and this is maybe the best way to say it is the other thing i've recognized is people in technology you know like you and i often think that technology is the solution to every problem and i actually mm-hmm. think that um for a lot of problems especially when it comes to decision making prioritization what do i do what don't i do i have this really difficult decision i need to make like and i just really i feel really conflicted how do i figure that out i'm sorry but technology is not going to solve i i am very bearish on technology solving <laughs> those problems and the reason is we are you know humans at the end of the day we um are very conflicted you know we often don't think very clearly about things um you know this goes back to like i feel like so often and the reason i i i write and i find writing so important is um you know richard feynman has a great quote of knowing the name of something doesn't mean you actually know anything about it you know but as yeah. as humans we we do this all the time we do this with technology we do this with trends we you know right now you know whether it's like nft art tokens or um you know bitcoin and cryptocurrency or um any of those things literally everybody has an opinion on it has has everyone done the work to have an opinion absolutely not you know but as humans we we just kind of can see past that and glance past that and so i think for those things it's really important to try to be as uh, like objectively reflective and re and real about you know where you're where you're at on those things like have i actually done the work have i have i have i thought enough about this and then i think the second thing is there's just uh, so what i maybe to, maybe to put a point on it what i try to do is just toggle between two ends of the spectrum and that's either mm-hmm. engaging with a lot of technology tools or literally going to the opposite <laughs> end of the spectrum and for me that's just because i found over time that i think most clearly i'm most in touch with myself and who i am and what i want because i think that's another modern problem is our our heads are clouded with so many other people's thoughts and ideas that we can't we don't even hear our own thoughts in our head and so what i found over time and is and, and maybe one way to think about it is i've just pushed those points in the spectrum out further and further where i use a lot of technology all the time but i've also tried to balance that out with just a lot of disconnected time sitting writing by myself absolutely absolutely i'm going to try it and this is actually the point where i usually ask my guest uh, uh, what would you do if you magically got an extra hour which you have already answered so let me just um, ask the cl- closing question if anybody who is listening or reading this uh, episode if they want to know more about you follow along your journey or maybe just get in touch with you what's the best way yeah so anyone um i i tweet on and off <laughs> people can follow me on twitter at uh, daniel scribner and my last name is s c r i v n e r just a harsh german name so make sure to pronounce that for people it's not necessarily intuitive um you can also go to danielscribner.com that's where you can see all of the interviews that i do on my podcast all the show notes there 
Um, we release a new episode every week on Tuesdays. Um, and again, anyone that's interested can learn more about that at outliers.fm, or you can just go and, and listen to some of the episodes, see the show notes at danielscribner.com. And then, yeah, if anyone listening wants to get in touch, feel free to email me ds at danielscribner.com is my email address. Um, and, and for flow, if anyone's interested in flow, wants to give it a try, make sure to go and check out getflow.com. uh, 30 days free. You don't have to put in a credit card. Um, the product gets better literally every single week. Um, and, uh, we've, we shipped something recently that's been a huge hit, which is, um, it's a feature called task status, um, which I think we're the, I haven't seen any other app have this. I mean, I'm sure it's common mm-hmm. in potentially engineering apps, but what it allows you to do is, um, Rather than everything, because again, the app is typically used by teams on teams. I'm, you know, anyone that runs a team is part of a team knows things really aren't ever not done or done. They're blocked. Mm-hmm. They're in progress. They're canceled because we just wanted to do this. And then we changed our mind on it. So we shipped a feature where you can take any task and flow and mark it as in progress or blocked or canceled or completed or to do. And um, it's been amazing for teams. So um, feel free to go and check that out. Fantastic. If you're listening to this episode um, on the uh, your favorite podcast app, you'll find all of these links in the show notes of this episode. Daniel, thank you so much for taking on time and talking to me today. I'm going to try out your routine and also add my experience with your routine as the last paragraph in the blog post. I will uh, thank you so much Daniel. to know how that goes for you. <laughs> I will also personally stay in touch with you and keep you updated. What's what's my progress like over the next few days? Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me, Mohit. It's been great. Thank, thank you, Daniel. That was fantastic. 